0: Thank you Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, frequent Behind the News guest Forrest Hulton will analyze the misery, chaos, and evolving military dictatorship that is Jair Bolsonaro's Brazil. And at the end of the show, the journalist Luis Feliz León will report on efforts to organize a union at an Amazon distribution center in Alabama. Poor Brazil, overrun by COVID and governed by a crew of deeply corrupt, incompetent authoritarians led by the dreadful Jair Bolsonaro, who's worse than Trump. Here to explain is Forrest Hilton, who normally teaches history and politics at the National University of Colombia in Medellin. He's supposed to have a visiting gig in Brazil, but because of the madness around COVID and Bolsonaro, it's all in limbo now. Bolsonaro was the ultimate beneficiary of a scheme run by the Brazilian elite in partnership with the U.S. government to destroy the Workers' Party, known by its Portuguese initials the PT, and to destroy two members of that party who served successively as president. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, known as Lula, who was jailed on bogus corruption charges, and Dilma Rousseff, who was impeached on bogus corruption charges. Bolsonaro has been awful, but there's little in the way of coherent opposition to him. Here's Forrest Hilton with more. How bad, how crazy is the COVID scene in Brazil now?
1: It's very difficult to grasp, even though most new cases and deaths have been pretty concentrated in the United States and Europe. I wrote a column for the London Review of Books just a few weeks ago when Brazil had surpassed 200,000 dead. And now it's approaching 240,000 dead with about 10 million cases overall and vaccination rate of about 2.4 percent. The vaccination campaign has simply stopped for the time being in Rio de Janeiro and Salvador da Bahia in the northeast and then down south. Here in Bahia, which is about the size of France, 15,000 new cases a day. We had, I think, 66 dead the other day. And we're headed towards some of the worst case numbers since last August and 100% occupation of intensive care unit in both public and private hospitals. Brazil has a very robust universal public health system. And if it were not for that, things would be infinitely worse but this is across the state that they're at 100% occupation in, in a total of nine hospitals. And the governor has warned, the governor is a, represents the center right within the Partido dos Trabalhadores, the PT, and he said that if things continue as they are going with new cases and deaths, there's going to be a collapse of the health system here in Bahia for the first time since the pandemic broke out. The governor did a really good job I would say, for at least the first six, seven months of the pandemic, working with mayors of different political tendencies. And without imposing very harsh lockdown measures, they managed to keep the pandemic largely under control. And Bahia was one of the states that was doing relatively well up until quite recently. And now it's a total disaster because it's carnival week, which means that there's tons of partying going on in the neighborhoods, on the beaches, on boats, in private homes. Farce in terms of controlling social distancing or limiting people on the beach or any of that sort of thing. And they've also had these massive outdoor parties in Sao Paulo especially, but also uh, in Curitiba, in Rio Grande do Sul, near Uruguay. So throughout Brazil, massive parties continue, and it is Carnival Week after all. So I think there's likely to be a spike in a few weeks. Social distancing is really not working very well. People try to wear masks for the most part, but I went to a fish market just outside the city. You know, maybe one in three people was wearing masks, and it was certainly what they call an agglomeration here. The measures that are being taken to control it don't seem to be working at all. And even where there are state governments that are doing a decent job of either trying to produce the vaccine in the case of Sao Paulo or get people vaccinated are coming up against the negationism and very firm opposition of the federal government.
0: Bolsonaro's government is opposed to producing a vaccine and vaccinating people?
1: Okay, so this is a complicated question because it gets into rivalries, I guess, to some degree between the governor of Sao Paulo, who's on the right and and supported Bolsonaro initially, but who has emerged as a semi-independent figure on the right. So potentially disputing political leadership with Bolsonaro ahead of the 2022 elections, he's positioned himself as responsible and scientific as opposed to sort of evangelical and negationist when it comes to dealing with this. And the major laboratory for the production of vaccines in Brazil is located in Sao Paulo, and Sao Paulo, up until recently, at least had one in four cases in Brazil. So that's where it's been concentrated. That's where they've got the capacity to make the vaccine. And the governor is trying to get it out quicker than the federal government timeline would allow. The federal government has done everything possible to slow down the pace of vaccination in Sao Paulo, because potentially I guess that would rebound to the political advantage of the governor. When asked about the situation in Manaus, in Amazonas, where there were lines 600 people deep to get a bed in an ICU and a black market in oxygen had opened up because of the scarcity of oxygen. Patients were being flown out of the city in order to be treated elsewhere. Bolsonaro, when asked about it, was like, hey, that's not my problem you know, I'm not responsible for that. So on the one hand, he says that anything bad that happens at the state level is his fault. And on the other hand, he actively makes sure that certain states have difficulty. So, for example, the Russian vaccine, Sputnik V, the state of Bahia, where I am, they already had cut a deal to get a certain number of doses of Sputnik V. And so state governors are entering into these kinds of agreements with pharmaceutical companies you know, some of which are backed by governments, yet they can't get these doses that they've already purchased through the federal government regulatory agency. So they're not actually doing Sputnik V right now, even though, like I said, the the government of Bahia has purchased a large number of doses. Nobody's being vaccinated with Sputnik V right now in Brazil because of the regulatory red tape, which appears to be completely politicized. And the same goes for the Pfizer vaccine. So two of the most important vaccines currently on the market are not being used at all in Brazil. And the federal government in Brazil failed to study the situation of the world market in vaccines or to negotiate in any serious fashion with anybody. So right now, they're basically begging the Chinese government for components that they need in order to make the vaccines here in Brazil. And because... The Brazilian equivalent of the Secretary of State, Ernesto Araújo, is so extreme in his opposition to China, very much in, in in a Trumpian mode, China has demanded his resignation in order to supply these components for the making of the vaccines. So China's trying to exert political pressure on Brazil. It's a kind of vaccine diplomacy in order to get somebody more to their liking appointed. And that's understandable because this guy... Araujo, he's really uh, beyond the pale when it comes to his attacks on China and the Chinese government. They're constant. And we should add that China's Brazil's number one trading partner and its markets are especially important for Brazilian agribusiness. It's fair to say that the whole process of making vaccines and then getting them out to the governors is entirely politicized and pits Bolsonaro against just about everybody.
0: It sounds a lot like Trump only worse.
1: When the storming of the Capitol took place on January 6th, Bolsonaro immediately tweeted, you know, you think this is bad, just wait till the elections in 2022. It could be considerably worse, meaning he's got a few tricks up his sleeve. In that regard, it's maybe worth mentioning that Bolsonaro... One of his campaign promises was that he was going to liberalize legislation on the purchase of firearms and munitions. Tariffs and taxes on weapons as well as munitions have been removed uh, in large measure. And the principal beneficiaries of this new market in arms and munitions will be these militia structures, as they're called which are especially powerful in Rio de Janeiro, where Bolsonaro is from, politically speaking. Bolsonaro's sons, one of them in particular, are very intimately tied to these militia structures, which are kind of an armed aspect of the Bolsonaro coalition. And they really make the scenes that we witnessed in D.C. with the storming of the Capitol— very dramatic on television and so forth. But the capacity that these militias have to uh, mobilize armed ultra-right-wing thugs is considerably greater than what we see in the United States with the far right. Bolsonaro has even fewer scruples about potentially mobilizing the armed paramilitary wing of his coalition. And, of course, at the heart of his coalition is the army itself, They're the central nucleus of the government right now, and it's very difficult to imagine how anybody is going to get them out of power in 2022. So I think much more than the question of what the elections in 2022 look like for Bolsonaro's prospects, the question is really who would be capable of removing the armed forces from power, particularly the army, and how would they do it? I don't see any clear answer to that. But Bolsonaro is depending very heavily right now on the army as well as ultimately these militia structures. The latest scandal here in Brazil has to do with the power of these extreme right elements in the Bolsonaro coalition, who are similar to the extreme right elements in in Trump's coalition in certain ways. A congressperson, uh, Daniel Silveira, has been arrested today for threatening one of the Supreme Court justices the entire Supreme Court now is afraid of threats and violence from this wing of the Bolsonaro coalition. So the extent to which the kind of malicious structures and, the, and, and some elements within the army are basically signing off on open attacks on the Supreme Court is certainly not a good sign. And in terms of where are we, democracy versus dictatorship in Brazil, it's pretty difficult to see this as a democracy right now, and it seems much more like a military dictatorship.
0: I'm speaking with the historian Forrest Hilton.
1: As far as the Congress goes, Bolsonaro has cut a deal with the group known as the Centrão, which is really just a coalition of people from mostly non-ideological, openly clientelist parties. and And the coalition, they come together for the purpose of pork politics and horse trading when it comes to who has what ministry. And the guy who just got elected as the head of Congress and is the head of the centron is uh, pretty clear that there's not going to be any impeachment processes. You know, there's like a hundred, over a hundred calls for impeachment have been submitted to Congress, but none of them has been acted upon. And the, the new guy in charge has made it clear that no one is going to act on these these calls for impeachment. And he himself is under investigation for corruption. So the Centrão is an astonishingly corrupt element within the Brazilian parliamentary system. And for now, Bolsonaro has bought their loyalty. I believe, you know, he's planning to give them a couple ministries. There's no need to close Congress, is my point in explaining how things are working with Bolsonaro and the Centrão, because the Centrão is not going to pose any threat or problem to Bolsonaro. He doesn't, need to, he doesn't need to shut it down. But right now, the main object of attack is uh, the Supreme Court. A
0: lot of the people who were arrested for the January 6th capital attack were provincial petty bourgeoisie uh, on hard times, small business owners who uh, had troubled bankruptcy, economic troubles. And that that seems to say something about the broader Trump coalition, this enraged provincial petty bourgeoisie. When I interviewed um, Rodrigo Nunes a few months ago, uh, he said that failed businessmen are an important part of the Bolsonaro base. Um, What do you think of that? Is that something like that going on in Brazil?
1: That helped Bolsonaro get elected. And What's curious to me is that his support element hasn't necessarily wavered very much in the pandemic. I don't have any figures to back that up. But my sense of things is that Bolsonaro has not lost the support of that layer which has been presumably quite adversely affected by, the, by this pandemic. I mean, tons of small businesses and medium-sized businesses have shut down, and national industry and even multinational corporations are pulling out of Brazil. When they've tried to privatize Petrobras at the end of last year, foreign investors were kind of wary of even getting involved. So,
0: why? Because the political situation is so messy, or what?
1: I think that's the reason why. The proposals that were being presented were, were simply not really credible. That wouldn't be a surprise coming from the Brazilian government. That it's just not serious when it comes to this sort of thing. So they can propose measures for privatization of Petrobras, but, but then it appears to be maybe more something for the cameras at the moment than, a, than an actual practical project. I mean, it's at that level of sort of farcical that, you know, it's not even a given that privatization projects are for real, as opposed to just simply a, a desire that they have but you know they're still trying to move forward with the privatization agenda and Brazilian domestic industry has been dismantled completely it already had been by the time of the uh, pandemic and it was dismantled in part through these anti-corruption campaigns that the US Justice Department was intimately involved in but I don't think that that kind of information is really of interest to or being processed by these small and medium-sized business owners who probably still blame Lula and the PT for most of what's wrong with Brazil, and they probably constitute part of that 32 or 33% of Brazilians who are just sort of rock solid behind Bolsonaro. His um, favorability ratings or the ratings, the unfavorability ratings, he's hit historic lows for favorability ratings, historic highs for unfavorability ratings, but still, something above 40% of the population tends to approve tends to overall, and then there's that hard nucleus of about 32 33%. And you would think that after this handling of the pandemic and the disastrous economic situation, that his disapproval ratings would be very high and that he would have lost kind of significant layers of supporters. He's lost significant sort of personalities and and kind of important players in Brazilian political and cultural life. And Brazil's richest man said that he was nostalgic for the time when um, Michelle Temer, who was uh, Dilma Rousseff's vice president, who helped orchestrate the coup against her in 2016 uh, and then was in power from 2016 to 2018, the richest guy in Brazil said, "You know, he was nostalgic for that time, from 2016 to 2018, when um, the coup operations had come off very nicely." So, there is a significant wing of Brazilian big business that is worried that Bolsonaro is bad for business, and there is some elite defection, certainly from Bolsonarismo, but not enough, it seems, to make very much of an impact. And my wager, without knowing, would be that the small provincial petty bourgeoisie that you're talking about, I bet many of them still approve of Bolsonaro, and many of them are still in that hard nucleus of of maybe one third of voters who are for Bolsonaro, regardless of what he says or does.
0: Watching Trump really made me rethink (laughs) the relative autonomy of the state. If you give a bunch of depraved maniacs any competence, control of a state, even without public approval, they can do an awful lot of damage and carry on, it seems, far longer than you might guess they could.
1: And that is a really pretty accurate description of what has been happening in Brazil since Bolsonaro came to power, but especially since the pandemic hit. So to give an example, the armed forces themselves have been worried that the incompetence of the general who's in charge of the Ministry of Health is so great that maybe it's a good idea to get rid of him and let Bolsonaro throw that ministry to the Centrão and not have the political blowback from corruption and mismanagement. That's how bad it is. I don't believe at any point during military rule from 1964 to 1985 I don't believe a general was ever in charge of the Ministry of Health in Brazil, and the degree of, as I said, incompetence, corruption, and mismanagement is there to see on television on a daily basis. The Minister of Health went to Manaus several times to make sort of declarations, yet the shortage of oxygen, the black market in oxygen, and the need to fly people out of Manaus to be treated in the rest of the country continue. So... You know, the farcical aspect is barely disguised, and there are sectors as well of the media conglomerates, which play such a decisive role in Brazil as in the United States. There are important sectors in in the media who are against Bolsonaro at this point, but in general, Bolsonaro is not encountering any kind of strong opposition from the media
0: Uh, The corruption investigations, you know, they they were the intercept documents released some time ago now. But um, what's happening with that? I mean, it's obviously a conspiracy to get Lula off the scene is what a lot of it looks like, right?
1: Well, now it appears that the army intervened directly and threatened the Supreme Court on this issue and therefore played a direct role in the 2018 elections that brought Bolsonaro to power. The Intercept has recently released more telegram messages between uh, Sergio Moro, who I'm pretty sure is a fugitive, although since there are no charges against him, technically he's not a fugitive. But in any rational universe, he would be a fugitive in the United States right now. But telegram messages between Sergio Moro and uh, Delton Dalanyo, the prosecutor, Moro was the judge, these telegram messages make it clear that Moro was orchestrating the prosecutorial
0: efforts. Moro was supposed to be an independent judge in heading up the investigation. He was not supposed to be taking
1: sides, right? Exactly. And the whole anti-corruption operation was being run out of Curitiba in Rio Grande do Sul, so a kind of state court. And, you know, Sergio Moro was basically celebrated by the United States in large measure as this kind of international, this crusading hero against corruption in general and PT corruption in particular. And Moro was, of course, anything but an independent judge and was coaching the prosecution on, for instance, how to stage these media raids and how to trump up the charges against Lula. It started out before Trump came came to office. This started out when Obama was still president. We can call it the plot against Lula and the plot against the PT. And Moro and uh and had close ties to different wings of the U.S. government. They visited the United States. And more importantly, there was U.S. government personnel operating in conjunction with this... Uh, Sort of judicial hit squad in Curitiba without the knowledge and consent of the Brazilian federal government. So, you know, the United States essentially teamed up with Moro and the judge and the prosecution to take out Lula. And one of the judges involved in Curitiba spoke of the need, this was just revealed, of the need to, uh, you know, to get Lula and shoot him in the head. And another metaphor that they used when talking about the campaign they were carrying out against the PT was uh, Hiroshima Nagasaki. We're going to go all out here with firebombing of the PT in the name of fighting corruption. And it cannot be overstated the extent to which the Brazilian media was part and parcel of this perversion of justice. An article just came out in the New York Times the other day saying that this anti-corruption campaign which was back to the hilt by the United States, was actually the most corrupt and in many ways perverse of the history of Brazil's judiciary. And the media went along with the cruel farce, staging it almost like reality television, whereby they would be tipped off to when a big high-profile arrest was going to be made, and then they'd be on the scene as the, the judicial police or whatever stormed the residents of, of whoever they were after. And this is up to and including Lula, that in addition to really weakening in a way that, that appears from the current vantage point to be fatal, weakening the PT, they also fatally weakened the Brazilian oil company, Petrobras, and uh, the construction and engineering Company, now, undoubtedly, there was a lot of corruption in those companies. But the point is rather that the anti-corruption campaigns were not really about rooting out corruption. They were about destroying national industry, sort of lock, stock and barrel, very much in line with U.S. foreign policy priorities. And again, this started under Obama, not under Trump.
0: And I presume, of course, that uh, corruption continues unabated, and uh, these investigations had no effect on the level.
1: I mean, arguably, corruption has has increased, certainly since the parliamentary coup of 2016, and most certainly since Bolsonaro took power uh, in January 2019.
0: I'm speaking with the historian Forrest Hilton. As with everything in Brazil and more than a few other places, race is a big part of politics. How's it playing out under Bolsonaro, especially given the COVID crisis and the economic wreckage around it?
1: In terms of how COVID is playing out sort of in terms of race and racism in Brazil, you know, it's hard to say because there's not really enough discussion or serious study of how it's playing out. In the midterm elections in the fall of 2020, in the midterm elections, Afro-Brazilians took 44% of the city councilor races, and they took 32% of the mayoral races. And that was in part because of a law that was passed in August 2020 by the Supreme Electoral Court that would allow equal access in terms of airtime and campaign money to Afro-Brazilian candidates. And Afro-Brazilians are said to make up about 54% of the Brazilian population. Now, I'm not sure if on the census they're asked if they're Afro-Brazilian or if they're asked if they're black. Black is a relatively new racial designation in Brazil, and you probably wouldn't find very much of it before the 1970s, when a black movement in Brazil really got off the ground, very much influenced by black power and civil rights in the United States. But Afro-Brazilian activism and movements have never really reached the majority of the Afro-Brazilian constituency. It's always been an embattled political minority. And, you know, some of these city councilors and mayors have already received death threats and, and intimidation. So, To the extent that there's much greater political representation at the local level than there used to be, it would seem that there is maybe some kind of advance for Afro-Brazilians, or at least the possibility of their basic concerns being recognized. But there's no question that, as the congresswoman from Rio de Janeiro, Benedita da Silva, has said, the majority of the working class in Brazil is black. The vast majority of the black population in Brazil is working class. Lula and Dilma helped implement really important affirmative action policies that were somewhat effective in the education sector. But in terms of housing, discrimination against Afro-Brazilians is rampant and they tend to be confined to the poorer and more peripheral neighborhoods. They have access to health care through the universal health care system. And this was really one of the great democratic conquests of um, Brazilian social movements and left-wing parties like the PT that there is universal health care. But of course, the discourse that the right is constantly hammering home through the media is that public health care is a disaster. It's a failure. Private health care is much better and it's the way to go. And they would very much like to privatize the healthcare care system. But for now, it's just a sort of lack of uh, significant Investment and a lack of sufficient collaboration from the federal government, which therefore leaves Afro Brazilians who are, you know, almost entirely dependent on the public health care system in a pretty difficult and uh, precarious position, especially now that the ICUs are filling up with, with COVID patients. So, in terms of uh, education, Afro Brazilians have traditionally been. Excluded almost completely, particularly from higher education. And again, it was Lula and Dilma who really began to change that for the better. But the Ministry of Education has basically been in freefall. Attacks on affirmative action are constant, and they are now filtering into popular culture through this awful reality TV show called Big Brother Brazil, Big Brother Brazil, unfortunately, is a sort of cultural force of its own, far beyond what I think any telenovelas ever achieved in terms of people watching it and discussing it and so forth. It's pretty clear that even at that level of popular culture, there's a concerted campaign against the idea that Afro-Brazilians deserve uh, affirmative action in education and a really strong reaction led by the middle class against the advances that afro brazilians made under Lula and Dilma. So majority of the working class is black. And again, to quote the senator from Rio de Janeiro, Benedita da Silva, they're being excluded from everything right now. So to the extent that Lula and Dilma really did make progress in including afro brazilians who had long been excluded from uh the polity and discriminated against in job markets that's been reversed and exclusion is the name of the game right now for the vast majority of afro-brazilians particularly since the pandemic hit and the economies in free fall the unemployment rate now is at historic highs since statistics were taken i guess beginning in the early 90s i think at around 15 percent and inflation Of basic foodstuffs, which also uh, disproportionately affects Afro Brazilians, has also been really dramatic. The price of rice has gone up by 76%. The price of um, soy based cooking oil has gone up by 100% just in the last year or so. Things like potatoes, beans, you know, and this is going on actually throughout the third world where more than half of household budgets go towards the purchase of food. But Brazil seems to be one of the most dramatic cases of food price inflation. And I think the overall inflation rate was something like 14 percent in 2020. And maybe the growth rate was around minus 10 percent in 2020. So you have total freefall economically And like I said, a lot of these small businesses who support Bolsonaro must have closed, and they're not getting any government support from Bolsonaro.
0: Are there any kind of income supports?
1: In terms of support for the poor, there was Hinda Basica Universal, not, I believe, universal as announced, but there was an emergency, emergency cash payments for, I believe, about $100 a month were implemented, much to the chagrin of the economy minister, uh, Paulo Guedes, who comes directly from Pinochet's uh, Chicago School of Neoliberal Economics. It's it's literal, not metaphorical in the case of Guedes. He participated in the Chilean government in the 1970s. So Guedes didn't want any kind of assistance to Brazil's poorest. Nevertheless, they were getting something on the order of $100 per month. That has ended. That ended at the end of 2020. So right now nobody's getting any of those checks. And obviously that augments the the degree of desperation, but it also augments the need that people have to constantly go out into the street and try to find some way to earn cash and pay for these increasingly expensive basic foodstuffs. So now that the Henda Basica has ended, they've said that they're going to reinstate it on a lesser scale maybe $180, $190 in total. So obviously that is not enough to cover the basic necessities of many people who really can't get jobs right now. This is not going to save them from disaster. But if we're trying to understand why Bolsonaro's favorability rating remains over 40% and his unfavorability rating is not that much over 50%, Certainly, the cash payments are really key to understanding sort of shockingly high levels of continued support, and probably among many poor Afro-Brazilians who are receiving these cash payments. It remains to be seen if that will continue.
0: All right, we're just about out of time, but um, where does this all go? I mean, is this more and more chaos and disaster? Is there anything hopeful in the scene, or is it looking bleak?
1: The reason that it looks bleak, is because of the weakness and disorganization of the political opposition, meaning the Lula-led PT, the PT. There were high expectations when Lula got out of jail that he was going to take it to the streets and really mobilize opposition against the Bolsonaro government and return the PT to its roots in popular street mobilization and strike activity and so forth. None of that happened. The PT and Lula appear to be rudderless and ineffectual. Their efforts to oppose Bolsonaro in Congress have certainly come to naught, and they have not been able to mobilize people in the streets. Very recently, both Lula and the PT candidate for presidential elections in 2022, uh, Fernando Haddad, have both said that they're going to they're going to get out the sort of the carnival outfits and the PT's carnival contingent and they're going to get them out in the streets. And even though there's no carnival, there's going to be a sort of popular manifestation of discontent and opposition to Bolsonaro. Well, that hasn't materialized. The biggest reason why the situation is so dark and dystopian right now is not actually Bolsonaro and the de facto military government. It's the weakness and disorganization of the PT and Inability of the PT and the political center, which is led by Ciro Gomez or the center left, to unify uh, in order to defeat Bolsonaro. There's no evidence that that's a possibility ahead of the 2022 elections, and it's very hard to see how the left, led by the PT and Lula, is going to win on its own. And certainly, the the center left, led by Ciro Gomez is not going to win on on its own. And therefore, it's not clear how the military is gonna be removed from power in 2022 or who might remove them from power. And I think it's fair to say that the military rule in Brazil from 1964 to 1985 was quite disastrous environmentally and in terms of the growth of inequality and all kinds of injustice and impunity in Brazil. But it's safe to say that this time around, beginning in 2019, and to some degree, the military was involved in the overthrow of Dilma Rousseff, so going back to 2016. But regardless of how we date sort of the military's intervention in Brazilian politics recently, it's been an even greater disaster for Brazil than the military dictatorship from 64 to 85 was. And it has set Brazil back, probably back to before Lula took over in 2002, and arguably the panorama right now is more, even more disastrous than it was in the 1990s, when there was really significant advances politically by the PT, as well as social movement mobilization, both of which are completely absent in the current conjuncture. That's Forrest Hilton, a professor
0: of history and politics at the National University of Colombia in Medellin, living for the moment in Brazil. You can find a lot of his work on Latin American politics on the London Review of Books website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of the Dies Irae from Verdi's Requiem, performed by the London Symphony under Colin Davis. Next, union organizing efforts at an Amazon distribution center in Bessemer, Alabama. My next guest, Luis Feliz Leon, a staff writer for Labor Notes, has been covering this story for the American Prospect. He sees it as part of an upsurge of labor militancy among essential workers. At the beginning, Leon refers to poultry workers who came out in support of the Amazon workers. The context for this is that he had just written a piece to The Nation about workers killed and injured at a poultry plant in Gainesville, Georgia, when a pipe supplying liquid nitrogen to a flash-freezing apparatus ruptured on January 28th. The plant has a long record of safety problems, and the workers, many of them undocumented immigrants, were afraid to complain about the dangerous conditions. Now poultry workers in Alabama are assisting in the unionizing effort at Amazon. Leon also mentions the history of the Mine-Mill Union in Alabama, that was a radical union active in the 1930s that organized across racial lines, a dangerous proposition in the Jim Crow era. Another historical note, Mine Mill was also very active in the nickel mining region of northern Ontario, but was driven out during the McCarthy years by a joint venture of the CIA and the United Mine Workers Union. I learned about that some years ago on a visit to Sudbury, the center of the nickel mining business up there. Okay, here's Louise Feliz Leon. You spent some time in Bessemer, Alabama, covering the, uh, the unionization struggle uh, against Amazon there. What's it like? How do the workers you talk to feel?
2: A lot of the workers that I spoke to were rank-and-file poultry workers that came out to organize uh, in support of a union at Amazon. It was kind of serendipitous that I wrote this story for the nation and then went down to Alabama to report on the organizing campaign in Bessemer. It was a really fascinating experience for me to go down and and talk to people. I spoke to union organizers, but I also spoke to just random people at a local gas station before they went into work at five in the morning. And what I heard was very contentious family conversations where the father was pro-union, the sister was anti-union. So the stakes are really high in Alabama. Some of the initial reporting that came out uh, in the New York Times made it seem as this came out of nowhere. But the retail and wholesale union, they have been doing a lot of great work in Alabama for, for many years now. They organized dialysis workers in Mobile and have been effective uh, organizers. So this is not something that came completely out of nowhere. And as we all know, you know, there was a radical union in Alabama, mine Mill, and that history is very much still alive. I wrote a piece for the New Republic About the Hunts Point strike. And I went to Alabama chasing evidence for a thesis I put forward in that New Republic piece. The title of the article is The Essential Worker Strike, where I argue that we were on the cusp of a resurgence in worker militancy. Before that piece, I wrote about teachers in, in Tennessee. So I've been focusing a lot on the South because I feel like there's a lot of movement and worker activity there. So it was really exciting to be in Alabama and to talk to workers and get a sense of what the stakes are for people.
0: Why Bessemer? Was there some reason the union targeted that town? Because there are, you know, these sorts of Amazon installations all over the country. Um, Was there something particularly attractive about uh, trying to organize Bessemer?
2: The workers at the plant reached out to the union. We want to organize. And the union said, oh yeah. This happened over the summer. Amazon, you know, has a a large sub- global supply chain. So workers have been pushing back against the grueling working conditions at, at Amazon fulfillment centers. So th- this was part of that. This was not like an instance where, let's say, Amazon could could say these are carpet baggers coming from outside. The organizers that are at the plant, they're poultry workers from Alabama. You know, so they're they're, they're folks that that are from the South, and that gave the effort. A, a certain legitimacy that other efforts may not have when people just parachute in and try to organize. So one of the organizers that I spoke to, her name is Jennifer Bates. Uh, she's a trainer at Amazon. She's someone that kind of moved up since uh, the plan opened. The plan has been open for about like six to eight months. So it hasn't been open for a very long time. And she's like an OG by, by the standards of how long the plan has been open but she quickly realized, like, you know, we, we need a union in order to change these working conditions. And as a trainee, I mean, she has access to new people coming in and can educate them on the importance of a union. This campaign has organic organizers, you know, on the ground. I'm cautiously optimistic that they may win.
0: Now, what's the response of the company been? Uh, it's funny because Amazon is now uh, embracing a rise in the minimum wage and bragging that all their workers are paid at least 15 an hour. A very strange conversion coming out of them. What's their response been to the uh, organizing efforts?
2: Before answering that, like, one thing that I, that I found out when I was out in Alabama is that Amazon had contract through third-party contractors. They hired um, folks that were recently released out of prison. As one of the organizers put it, use them as walking billboards for their anti union campaign. Uh, so these folks are not part of the bargaining unit. They're not even Amazon employees, technically, because they're hired by a third party contractor, but they're paid $13 an hour, right? So this whole talk about like, you know, Amazon being in support of the $15 minimum wage is really hypocritical considering how much they rely on third party contractors. And that, that's not only part of, of the Bessemer Fulfillment Center. That's also true about like its whole logistics apparatus.
0: Now, I figured something fishy was going on like that. So thanks for explaining it. So uh, the company's response.
2: It's been brutal. Like they, they put anti-union messaging in bathroom stalls. And they've positioned them just right that when a person sits down over the, the, the toilet, they're face to face with this anti-union messaging. The workers shared with me some of the, the text messages that Amazon was sending them. right? And some of the, the text messages were, we are a winning team. We don't need outsiders telling us you know, what to do. You, you can do it without dues, which is the website that you know Amazon set up as part of its anti-union efforts. The company has gone all in. They've tried to stall the election. They flooded the bargaining floor by trying to add more people into the bargaining unit, although the, the union had more than 30%, so that didn't work. They've thrown the kitchen sink at trying to stop the, this campaign to, to unionize Amazon. It's just indicative of why it's important to organize at Amazon. I think the next step in this struggle is coordinating, organizing along Amazon's global supply chain. So just today, you know, I learned that workers in Italy are also going on strike against a um, planet because of the working conditions. This is a global phenomenon, and I hope that it galvanizes other workers in California California has one of the largest fulfillment centers. It's like 3.5 million square feet. Imagine the possibilities of organizing that warehouse. We're only at the beginning. If these workers win this, it's going to be a game changer.
0: And what did you hear from the workers? I'm sure you heard a mix of things. How much sympathy with... Amazon, I mean you know, how much should they buy the propaganda i mean what, what what kind of mix of things did you hear from the workers
2: yeah, I mean that's a great question i I spoke to people that you know the union made available to me, but I also met up with some uh, workers uh, before they were starting their shift, and I asked them, you know what do you think about this union campaign and you know what I heard was was mixed i there were some people. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, that had just been released from prison, that they were very adamant about, you know, remaining anonymous as they spoke to me. But their take was, this is the most that I've earned in my life. And then there are other people that are conflicted. They buy the whole argument that they can do this without paying dues. The irony is that Alabama is, you know, a right to work state. So technically, these workers don't have to pay dues to be part of the union. Obviously, the union is going to work really hard to make sure that, they can argue for the value of a union card, uh, and they eventually become dues paying members, it's not a precondition to be part of the union, you know, for you to pay dues. So that messaging, like has failed. Um, The messaging that I think has been more compelling, uh, that workers have pointed to is this idea of having a say in the workplace, which Amazon has kind of twisted and perverted into somehow, you know, the union being this strange entity that, that is going to come between you and your manager, which is like you know, typical anti-union messaging. But it, it resonates with some of these folks in the South. We could put it in the conservative, rugged individualism category, but we can also identify that. People have an innate desire for autonomy and to have a say in their workplace. That's been a little harder to counter. But, but overall, the union did a really good job organizing and getting as many workers as possible to sign union cards. So they, they exceeded their 30% requirement. So that, that's what makes me optimistic because a lot of the folks that I spoke to that were against the union, they're technically not voting because they were hired maybe a month ago or two weeks ago because that was part of Amazon's strategy. So if you look at old press releases, they had committed to providing 1,500 jobs. The plan is now nearly 6,000 workers. <laughs> and then they didn't do that to build good jobs in Alabama. They did that to destroy the union because they thought by flooding the floor, the union would not get to that 30% threshold to call for uh, an election. So that's, that's why they did it.
0: So what happens? They're, they're voting now. And what's, what's the time frame?
2: The voting will wrap up March 29th. So right now it's a vote by mail election. That's another thing that Amazon wanted to change. They wanted to make it in person. This is like absurd. They were willing to buy up land and build hotels to hold the election, but they couldn't agree (laughs) to a union contract so that these workers have a say. So they were willing to spend all this money basically creating like hotels in order to hold this election which is another way of like holding like a captive audience meeting.
0: Finally, on your idea about uh, the, you know, the rebellion of the essential workers, what else you got uh, on, on the plate that you're looking at?
2: I'm working on a story coming out of New Jersey, New Brunswick. There's a biomedical plant there that produces COVID test kits before they were producing malaria kits for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Health Organization. And they rely on temp agencies to hire their workforce and most of the workforce is undocumented. And the irony is that as these workers are producing these test kits, the conditions at work are not safe. They don't have proper social distancing measures in place. The stations for the hand sanitizer dispensers are empty. They're being shoved, abused, summarily dismissed, because they're temp workers. These folks come in vans and once they arrive, they can start work, let's say for 30 minutes, and then a plant manager comes in and tells them, nope, we don't need you. You got to go back home. And then these workers are left there without a ride, trying to figure out how to get back home. So it's a terrible work environment. Through the CARES Act, a lot of temp agencies actually got really hefty loans with low interest rates. And what, they're, what they've done is basically become middlemen to companies like BioAccess, which is the the plant that that I'm writing about for the American prospect to basically exploit these workers through uh, these uh, employment agencies, right? Because they they claim that they're not responsible for them because they're not their employees, right? That question about like, who's the boss (laughs) is animating that struggle as it's animated the struggles, you know, for Uber drivers. And the question of joint like employment, uh, which I'm trying to figure out with labor lawyers to understand like, what's the threshold where, the company bears some responsibility for the workplace. And some of these workers, they've worked as temp workers for five years, some as many, year, as, many as 10 years coming you know, to the same company. A lot of them are undocumented, right? So one of the things that a worker shared with me earlier today is that she was getting paid through a debit card. So the company was depositing money in a debit card and other co-workers, they were working overtime and they would sign in under one name, work eight hours, then work an additional eight hours under another name. These are the conditions that essential workers are facing. That was Luis Feliz León,
0: a staff writer at Labor Notes, who's been covering the Amazon organizing effort for the American Prospect. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a relic of simpler times, letter from an occupant by the new pornographers featuring Nico Case. Till next week, bye.